Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the journalist and novelist, Dan Moran. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I actually had to think then about how I was going to introduce you, because (laughs) you started as a journalist many years ago, wanting to be a novelist. You are now a novelist, but you are also still a journalist. So how how do you think of yourself primarily? Oh, man, that's a great question, because I, I think, you know, there are different ways that we sort of prioritize and define the way that we think about ourselves. And I think the for me, a long time, the tendency was, well, my name is associated so much with the tech journalism that I do that that should go first. Right. Because that is how most people will know me. But I think over the years, it's shifted a little bit more to sort of an aspirational, almost marketing idea where it's like, well, I mean, if I want to present myself as a novelist, then then that should go first. So for me, I think I, I've shifted more and more to that, that even though, you know, to, to be perfectly frank about it, the the novel novelizing part of it doesn't make up as much of my monetary income right. as, say, the tech journalism. It's still the thing that I put first because you know, it's also the thing that I'm really proud of, right? Like that's right. part of it too, is the, I, I am so proud of the books that I have written and put out there that I want to sort of draw attention to that first. Uh, even though sort of my working day job as a journalist is still kind of what pays the bills for the most part. Right. So do you consider the journalism as a day job then, which I mean, you know, al- almost all writers and aspiring writers can identify with? Yeah, less less and less some in some ways as time goes by. And part of that is also because the, the third the third prong of it for me, which we didn't necessarily mention up front there, is podcasting. Oh, um, yeah. And, and so <laughs> but you actually, actually get paid for this, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I do a lot more of that these days. And it's the thing that also has the most structure to it in my daily life. So it in just some ways because you're relying that, on being there with other people you've got to schedule yeah, things exactly yeah. so as such i think of that mostly as the day job just because of the sort of the strictures of it right like okay i've got to be here at this time i have to do these things and hit these deliverables for the week right like i put out an episode and so in some ways that feels more like the day job where the writing has become that even the tech journalism part of it has become more something that uh, sort of filters in around through the cracks here and there it's like ah oh, yes i'll write my column here or i'll put this piece together um and, and I honestly, I, I've taken fewer tech journalist freelance jobs in the past few years as I try to devote more attention to writing. So I have like some staple gigs that I still do that are part of that day job. But yeah, it's it's become a focusing certainly brain space, like so much more of that is taken <laughs> up by writing novels. I think that's just true of, of writing. No matter what you're doing, you know, you could be a nuclear physicist and writing novels would probably uh-huh. still take up more of your brain space because <laughs> it's always there. It's um, always there. So what are you writing at the moment? I mean, apart from the journalism, like novel wise, what are you writing at the moment? Uh, there are two things. Um, I have a, uh, a novel coming out in May of 2020 called The Aleph Extraction, which is a follow up to my novel that came out in 2019, The Bayer and Agenda. And it's set in the same world, the Galactic Cold War, sort of my spies and spaceships series. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And I have another project that I've been trying to um, get to a place where it's kind of off the ground for a while. Uh, that's more of a, uh, yeah, I guess, br- broadly speaking, urban fantasy, supernatural detective story that I have written. Um, but my agent and I are still kind of going back and forth about that. It's very close to being at a point where I'm hopeful that it will uh, get out there and maybe we'll find a, a home for it. But it's still something that I am kind of ironing out the last few kinks on. And are you working on that? You know, you're you're still actively working on that at the moment. Yeah, I've got a couple uh, queries from my uh, my agent that I'm trying to turn around and finish up, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of come up with some ideas for other stuff too. Uh, I'm in like very early stages of sketching out um, sort of a second world fantasy, I guess you would call it. That's kind of been in the back of my head, and I've got a few other projects here and there that I've been interested in delving into. But yeah, the the current ones are the ones taking up the most time right now. Okay, interesting. So uh, I'll just quickly say to viewers, by the way, I love Dan's Galactic Cold War books and the Aleph Extraction is his best one yet and you should all rush out and buy it in May when it comes out. Um, So this is interesting. So you are, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that your main thrust, your main interest has always been in writing science fiction. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I've certainly been trying to do that for a long time. For I mean, longer I, than anything else, right. Yeah. Sure, yeah. I mean, science fiction fantasy, I kind of view them as yeah, as part of the same genre. I'm not going to get into a genre discussion about it, but like that kind of <laughs> speculative carefully. fiction. Yeah, that kind of speculative fiction is always what has captured me. Right. And so whether it was a science fiction or a fantastic story or even something set in like sort of our our present day world, but with magical elements like that is what appeals to me. So I I've been writing stories of that kind for as long as I can remember, honestly, like sure. back to when I could actually first start writing things down like first or second grade. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, science fiction has more recently because that's what I've had success with. Like that's kind of the thing that is, I've spent the most time with recently, but I'm, I'm hoping to sort of branch out around that too. Cause I, I like all sorts of stories. Well, that's why I mention it because, and it's so it's interesting that you know you say not just sci-fi, but really speculative fiction, however you want to frame it, of all kinds. Because you know, uh, uh, an urban fantasy obviously is a different thing to a sci-fi, but it is nevertheless still a fantastical genre. You know, it's not like you're suddenly going into true crime or something. Uh, and right. the same would with the second world thing, but they are nevertheless different subgenres if you want to get that nitpicky. Uh, and right. I was going to say, like, is that is that a conscious effort to not just do sci-fi or are they ideas that came to you and you're like, well, heck, it sounds like a good it feels like a good idea. I'll go ahead and write it and see how it turns out. I think anything that uh, appeals to me as an idea, I don't worry too much about genre. Uh, I think there are genres that I, I like consuming. And so almost anything that I like to consume as a genre is something that I think in the back of my head, like, oh, maybe I could write something in this kind of uh, st style or tone. Um, I mean, I've I've tried my hand at sort of your, you know, quote unquote, literary fiction as well. And it's it's you know, I wrote um, over the course of a couple years for um, uh, NaNoWriMo exercises. I did like a essentially a novel length literary fiction story i i don't think it's my best work i also i just don't think it's something i gravitate towards as much so for me i think it's definitely about the idea if you can find a compelling idea um then i don't think it really matters uh what kind of genre it is i mean it's just so if it's your agent and marketers might disagree with you <laughs> that's, that's that is true that is this true. is something I a, that i have dealt with or you know sort of fought against over the years many, many times, like I've dabbled in so many different genres mm -hmm, across mm -hmm. so many different media. And I'm sure, you know, if I'm, as you said, speaking frankly, I'm sure that it has stymied my career in some ways. I probably could have had more success in a particular arena if I had stuck to a certain genre and or a certain format. But, but life's too short, man. You know, I just, yeah, I'm, right. I'm not that kind of guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and there are there are definitely stories I've developed over the past, uh, you know, couple decades as I've been honing my craft, I guess, <laughs> uh, that fit in different media, too. I think that's a part of it. Like I, I've come up with stories that I feel like, oh, yeah, you know, this would make a really good graphic novel. And I was like, well, could I adapt that to a novel? And I'm like, nah, I don't know if it works like I and, and you sort of feel like that gets you into sort of different areas. And are you spreading yourself too thin across all these genres? But like, there's also a, just an innate sort of curiosity and passion for writing stories that fit both the genre and format, right? Like in the same mm -hmm. way you've written video games, you've written comics, you've written novels, like you've done all those things. And some stories work better in certain formats or some stories work better in different genres, even if there are like thematic similarities, you know, you could tell a story about, uh, you know, a parent and a child relationship against the backdrop of any genre, really. It's just how you want to sort of flesh that out. Absolutely. So, okay. So you mentioned honing craft and you also mentioned your NaNoWriMo literary attempts, which you think maybe aren't your best work and stuff, but, <laughs> but it, well, but you know, let's not laugh. I mean, I can say as a reader of your novels, you have honed your craft. Like the Aleph Extraction is a markedly different and better book just in terms of its prose and construction than your first novel um you know and i'm not trying to blow smoke i genuinely mean that you have gotten better with every book uh so but um, so what i'm trying to get at is you you've tried these other approaches you've tried doing other things they maybe haven't worked out do you still consider them to have been valuable in teaching you what you can and can't do or what you what you are more or less um, inclined 
to do because I've definitely found that there are things I've done and at the end of it I've gone oh, okay well it's all right but I didn't have that great a time writing it not really bothered about writing another one I'll just sort of leave that thing alone now yeah absolutely I, I I don't consider anything wasted time and it's frustrating because there it does feel like a lot of time you pour a lot of effort in something and sometimes it's just not working um, or you finish something and you're like well I'm done with that but I'm not really proud of it or I don't feel like there's any place left for me to go with it but even even if it doesn't end up turning into a you know final published book, I think there's a huge amount of value to take away from that. I one of my earliest bits of remember uh, asking someone for writing advice was I remember going to a reading, oh man, probably fifteen to twenty years ago uh, by Neil Stevenson, who I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of, and I went up and got my book signed, and I asked him like, hey, what do, what's your advice for someone who is uh, you know wants to be a writer? And his advice was write 10,000 pages and throw them out. Uh, and <laughs> a bit like the I, old 10,000 hours thing. Exactly. Or, yeah. Exactly. But I think his point was anything, and this is my sort of theory, anything that you spend that much time on, you can't help but get better at. Yep. And the time you spend doing all of that is both consciously and unconsciously stuff that you can learn from. So I did, I did NaNoWriMo for a bunch of years. Um, I wrote you know, two, I've written two, three, four novels that, you know, will never see the light of day. I've written and started countless more, um, even more recently. Like I have, there's like a story I've been trying to crack for a while. And, you know, I've gotten as far as writing 20, 30,000 words in it before I'm like, nah, it's just not, it's not clicking. Um, and it can be frustrating, but I think that there's also a ton to take away from that. You learn so much. And like you said, like my, I like to think my books are getting better as they go along because I am learning all of this stuff. Doesn't mean that there's not always challenges, but you can't, again, you can't help but get better the more you do something because uh, whether you're aware of it or not, you are learning things as you go. You are finding your strengths, finding your voice, and just being able to sort of more adroitly put things down on a page. You get better at, it's like speaking a foreign language. Like the more you do it, if you're immersed in it, you're going to learn a lot more. Uh, and you're going to get better at it as you go. And in the same way, you get better at sort of translating those ideas from your head onto the page. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't count any of it as time lost. I mean, if anything, I look back and I was like, why didn't I spend more time <laughs> doing right. all this stuff? So that's an interesting analogy, actually. Yeah, because I mean, the other thing about learning a language is there is no substitute for just going and living in another country. Yeah. And being mm -hmm. surrounded by that language. And that's kind of like you can uh, practice, if you like, and sort of plan and read, you know, and get advice from people like us or whatever, or you like. But the best way to learn how to write a book is to write a book. It's, it's the only way, as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, there's that wonderful, I, I always attribute it to Neil Gaiman, but I know he got it from somewhere else and I can't remember where. That thing about where somebody asked him, you know, uh, do you ever feel like you've learned how to write a book? Yeah. I mean, in fact, you know the source of this because you told me, didn't it's, you? I think it's Gene Wolfe. I want right, to say Gene Wolfe. That was Gene it. Wolf. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You never really learn how to write a book. You just how to learn how to write this book, um, yeah. which is absolutely true. But that 100%. ties into. I've written about this several times, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about it. The my just write philosophy, the idea that, as you said, you can't help but get better as long as you keep writing and finishing projects that's the important thing you know it, even your nanorima things may only have been 40 50,000 words but if they're a complete work that's mm -hmm. when you're able to stand back from them and look and assess them and go oh okay i can see why that doesn't work or this bit does work or that bit's no good or whatever and that's how you learn from it by continuing to to get through it and finish work and doing more of it and, and frustrating as it is i think even the ones that you don't finish you learn something from i mean there's there's lessons to be learned about what not to do as well uh, as you go along. And, and I'm certainly not advocating you should start works not to finish them. But if you if you get bogged down in worrying that you'll never finish something, then you may never start. And I think that's a that's always a risk, too. So sometimes you have to throw yourself in the deep end, you know, even if you worry that you might not finish project, because one of these moments, you'll surprise yourself, right? Like I remember the first novel that I ever finished. Uh, from, you know, like wrote the last words on was like, that was a complete story. Uh, it was like a hundred thousand words, you know, and I wrote it when I was 24 or whatever. And I just, that sense of accomplishment, right? There's always going to be yeah. a first time that you finish something. And, and that is a, I think you're totally right that there is still more to learn from that because 
once you finish something, the, the most important lesson that you can learn from it is you can do that, right? Like you can finish yes. it. And if you can finish it once, you can you do, can it, do again. it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. Um, okay. So take us, what's a typical day like for you? And especially if you've got to juggle your podcast schedule against your writing schedule, like again, you know, famously I have this thing where I write in the mornings, I do it every morning, you know, that's my time and I don't schedule anything else while I'm doing that. But you're not always going to have that option because you're reliant on the schedules of other people to record your podcast. So what is a typical day like for you? Well, I had a really good schedule going for a while where I would get up, I would go. uh, So I work at home being a a journalist and a podcaster. I would walk to my local coffee shop, which is like a little under 10 minutes away. I would sit down. I would get some writing or editing done, uh, spend a few hours on that, uh, go home, record a podcast, and then spend my afternoon either doing podcast editing or writing something for uh, journalism. Um, that's kind of get thrown in dis- disarray because, as you said, I'm I am bound to other people's schedules, which means that uh, they don't always want to record at the same time that I would love to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my week is now much more variable than it used to be because I have at least one podcast co-host who is like literally every week is like, when is your opening this week? And we have <laughs> to record when that is. Um, and so a lot of my podcast stuff has end up coalescing on like one day in the week, which is just like kind of madness now. But I do try to stick like you. I, I think I work better early in the morning um, and I'm not quite as uh, good at sort of um, I, I feel like I need to clear out my cruft in the morning when I get up. So I do check my email. I read Twitter. I, I do my social media stuff. But then like the walk to the coffee shop is often a great time for me to clear my head, you know, put on some music or something and get into the zone. Um, and so that when I get to the coffee shop, I can sort of sit down and start working on something. I'm not always as good about doing it every day as I would like, especially in the winter when it's colder and, you know, <laughs> I don't want to go outside. <laughs> but, you know, the, the mornings for me are definitely the most productive times I find when the afternoons roll around. I'm good for doing stuff that's a little more rote. Um, you know, doing my books or doing a podcast editing thing that's just sort of a little more uh, something I can kind of zone out and do, but it's not as great for doing creative work. So for me, um, starting in the mornings is great. I will occasionally do some stuff in the evenings or even late at night sometimes. It sort of wraps back around to getting to a point where I feel like I can work again. But yeah, I, I think it's it's not one of those things that I, I like being precious about in terms of like, oh, I have to be in this space and I have to be in this mindset because I find the more you get attached to that, the less writing you actually do because it, it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, oh, I'm not in my writing space. I can't do anything. Uh, and at the end of the day, you got to be able to work whenever, or wherever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something I know I need to work on a little bit. Like, and I definitely feel it when I'm not being as regular about doing my writing, I get antsy, I get cranky. Um, and then that's a sign for me. It's like, all right, you got to get back on the horse, got to get back on your schedule and kind of stick to that. So, okay. So you said you work from home, but it actually sounds like you, you podcast from home and you write from a coffee shop. <laughs> yeah. I, there, it's interesting. There, there, I, I have written in the house. Um, like I said, I feel like you need to be able to do it anywhere, but for whatever reason, being surrounded by other people, I find very focusing. Uh, and part of it is because if I'm at home, there is no need to focus. It's like, well, everything is quiet. You know, there's no one else around. This is the perfect time for you to sit down and start doing your writing. And for some reason, that is incredibly distracting to me. And maybe part of it is also just like, there's always stuff. There's always something in the house, right? Like I could be doing, oh, there's dishes in the sink. Oh, I I need to neaten my desk. Oh, right. Like there's all these opportunities to procrastinate and do other stuff that you might need to do, but like maybe you don't need to do it right now. Whereas going to a place always feels very much to me like, again, like you've carved out that time. Like, okay, this is the spot. I'm going to go do this. Uh, I'm going there with the specific purpose of doing this thing. There's like a limited amount of time I can stay there. And when I get there, because there are people around, it means I need to work harder to focus. So like, you know, I need to put my headphones on, I need to put some music on, uh, and, and something about that is just easier for me to kind of sit back and get into the state that I need to be in to actually do productive writing. So yeah, counterintuitive, but yeah, so ironically, it works. being surrounded by distractions actually makes you focus because right. you have to deliberately focus more yes. than when you do it at home. So otherwise I'm really lazy. <laughs> do you think, 
and this is I'm just spitballing here, but do you think that that's because of your previous life working in an office as a journalist and being surrounded by you know other people working and making noise? I, I like that this has become a little therapy session for me. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. No, because I always worked at home as a free. I was all, I never worked in an office. Oh, did you not? I didn't realize that. I never that. did. No, I, I occasionally, you know, a few times a year. Uh, so I, I mainly worked for Macworld uh, when I was doing a full-time freelancing uh, and their offices are in San Francisco. So I pretty much, I would work there, you know, when I would take a trip out to cover an event or something, I would often be in the office for a couple days. And I was terrible at that. I would always just talk to people because I was like, I am alone all the time. Please socialize <laughs> me. Um, I did used to work in an office uh, when I had my, in my previous career, which was doing uh, IT work and web development. And it's funny because like I mentioned finishing my first novel at 24, which I definitely finished in the office at my IT job on like a lazy Friday when, when you no one was been, around. Yeah. <laughs> I should have been working. Yeah, that's fine. There was nothing to do. Um, but yeah, I, I've always I've been working from home uh, for 13 years now. So for me, that's just it's normal, right? right like right. that is most of my life. I have been doing that. I spent relatively little time in an office comparatively. So I think, again, it's the same you know, maybe it grows out of the fact that when I first started doing, uh, you know, writing professionally, I was either living at home uh, at my parents' house because so you had I had to left get out of the house. Yeah, exactly. Or I had roommates and the same sort of thing. I didn't necessarily uh, yeah. have like an office or anything um, in my house. So I was like, you know what? I got to get out of the house and go sit somewhere. And again, just when you're first making that shift from like, oh, yes, I have worked in an office to working at home. Some of it is also just like you miss being around people. And it's like, well, going to a coffee shop is a great way to be, uh, you know, alone together with a bunch of people. See, that's one thing I, I did. Do, I, I did my time as a designer working in agencies and offices and publishers offices and all that sort of thing. I don't miss people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite happy in my study here by myself. Thank you very much. Um, all right. Let's get away from the therapy then. So tell me. <laughs> Tell me about how you started professionally as a novelist. I mean, not as a journalist, how you started professionally, you know, the sort of steps leading up to it. And and what what did you learn from your early sort of pro experiences, you know, from your first book being published? Um, yeah. So the book that I've eventually became my first book, I started writing uh, 2008 or 2009. Um, and it took a long time to go from something that I was working on to, uh, you know, getting it to the point of publication. Uh, and so I had experimented a lot with writing all these things and I knew I could finish a book. So I sat down and I was like, well, I've had this idea kicking around for a while. So I wrote it. Um, and I spent some time revising it. You know, I, I gave it to friends, et cetera. Uh, in around 2000, oh, well, I don't even remember what year it was, but several years later, uh, I was, I decided, you know, I'm going to get serious about this. So I'm going to start by going to, we had a local, um, sci-fi con. Um, and, uh, I had gone to it many years earlier after sort of my first finishing my first novel and thinking like, ah, maybe I should get out there. And then I got sort of sidelined into the whole tech writing thing. Um, and so I went to this con and I had read a blog post, uh, a few months earlier by this, uh, author named Mike Cole. Um, ah, and it yeah, was, yeah. yeah, it was this really interesting blog post that talked about the fact that like, look, he was a professional writer. He was living in New York city and even though he had done, you know, pretty well, he'd put out a book, he had, a, you know, another one under contract, um, you know, it was selling, it was with one of the big five, you know, all that, like he couldn't make enough to live. And it was like, it was just fascinating because it was really honest and it was really transparent about like, here's the challenges of this business. Like here, you got to be prepared for this kind of thing. And so uh, I, he was happened to be at the con and I was like, oh, that was a really interesting blog post. I want to go talk to him. So I, I ended up going up and we chatted for a little bit. Uh, and I think I, I went to a coffee clatch that he did, which is if you've ever been to a con, it's essentially you sign up to sit down at a big table with a bunch of other people and usually a writer or editor or agent or, you know, some other person of some note. And it's just sort of an opportunity to sit around and ask them questions. And, and Mike is an incredibly generous, really, really smart guy. Um, and he was like, look, I know you're all here because you want to be writers. Ask me anything you want. I'm, I'm happy to just, you know, tell you, tell it like it is. And so well, he and I isn't, up, isn't Mike ex military. So yes, there's yes, pretty much is. nothing you can say to him or ask him that he's going to offend him. You know, <laughs> exactly. He is very, he is just very like a collected guy. Like he knows what he's about and he's, um, really 
just incredibly generous with his time. Um, and so I ended up chatting with him and, uh, we were talking at the end and his agent walked up and he's like, Oh, and, and you know, Mike being the nice guy, he, he is just turned around and it was, Oh, this is my agent, Joshua Bilmus. This is Dan, Dan, he wants to be a writer. And so I, you know, I knew who Joshua Vilmus was. I had actually sent one of my earliest novels to him and it got rejected. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did like you in, remind him of this? Uh, much later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not at that time. Yeah. Good. Good yeah, call. <laughs> and so, and so Joshua and I ended up chatting a bit and, um, I think it really helped my case that I was a working journalist at the time. Right. So I had a lot of experience. Um, and so we had ended up talking and, you know, at the end I was like, well, look, I've, I've written a book. I, I would love to have you take a look at it if you're interested. And he gave me his email and I, you know, followed up after the conference and sent it over and, and then becomes the big part of everybody, right? Every writer's game, right? You wait, right? Like you sit oh, yeah, wait the waiting with bated breath, like, <laughs> will they read it? Will they like it? Uh, and you know, Joshua came back to me a few months later and was like, look, I read it. Um, it needs some work, but you know, there's potential here. And so we spent the next several years kind of going back and forth where, you know, he would give me some comments and I would go back and, and rework stuff and spend several months kind of like tweaking and readjusting and taking sort of his big picture notes to heart. Uh, and, you know, I think I did that over the course of a few years, essentially, like and mm -hmm. I would see him at the cons. He would ask me for updates and we talk a little bit about it uh, and we became friendly, too. Right? Like that was that was a big part of it. And so eventually, you know, I finally at one point got the manuscript into a shape that he was happy with it. And he, uh, you know, signed me as a client and uh, we took the, the book out to get sold. And that was it was a long time. It was a long time for him to spend. And I, I you know, certainly am hugely appreciative to Joshua um, because he he was willing to uh, not only help someone that he had, you know, no kind of vested interest in, really, um, but take the time to develop my career because he saw potential in even something that was kind of rough, right? Like he yeah. could look at it and say like, there there's, it's not there yet, but there's something here. It's just, it needs some work. And not only was that a great experience for, you know, getting that book into shape, but it taught me a lot about like questions to think about when I'm constructing a book or like the kind of issues that come up when you're looking at like, how do we create a, a book that we can then take out and sell to people? So that was, just a hugely uh, important part of developing my career as a professional writer. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's kind of the platonic ideal of sort of a representative of any kind, really, isn't it? Is someone who is willing mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. invest that time. And you know, from his point of view, it may actually not have been that much time in terms of the blocks sure. of time. I mean, but as you say, over several years, that is it accumulates you know yeah, uh, and that shows yeah a, a kind of a, a dedication to so it take, takes the long view right and that's right well it's know, a dedication to the art i was going to say not yeah. just to the business but to the art and yeah appreciating the fact that okay here's a writer who could be a great writer so i will try to you know they i'll try to help them yes I, I may make some money off them down the road but clearly there's got to be more behind it yeah. than that and i i mean let's be honest i don't think you become a literary agent for the money uh, much like you don't become a novelist for the money, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I had the same the medium bucks, <laughs> right? I mean, I had the same kind of thing with my literary agent, who I uh, signed with to specifically to renegotiate an ongoing graphic novel contract that I had mm -hmm. already was already involved in. So it wasn't to sort of get me work; it was more a kind of you know I need somebody to take a firmer hand in these negotiations. Um, and that was many, many years ago. And almost from the word go, she was like, and by the way, if you ever feel like writing a novel uh, and just kept sort of planting, you know, planted that seed and then kept cultivating it every so often to the point where obviously a few years ago I went to hell with it. I will write a novel. Um, and it turned out to be a great decision. It's, uh, you know, uh, but again, it took years of right. yeah. her, you know, like I say, she's made a bit of money off of me, but not, it's not like I've, bought her a Rolls Royce or anything uh, yeah, from right. the graphic novel stuff over the years, but she saw that potential. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah it, that's really valuable. So, all right, let's get into the weeds a bit then. Mm -hmm. So are you, I don't recall, are you an outliner or a pantser? Uh, I am traditionally a pantser. Um, I have never really loved outlining um, for me, so much of the process is about discovering things along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know it's, it's super risky as, as everyone will tell you, like it is one of those things where you're working without a net 
And if something doesn't break right, then you could end, very easily end up tossing out a whole bunch of your book. For me, it's it's worked pretty well. I've had by necessity to become a little bit more of an outliner. Um, and, you know, this is not to say I go in with no idea whatsoever. I have, uh, you know, I make notes. Um, they're just not very structured. And a lot of it is like, I think in terms of sort of, um, I don't know, like tent poles, maybe you might call them like scenes along a book, right? Where it's like, oh, there's gotta be a scene where this happens. There's gotta be a scene where this happens. And then a lot of times it's the connective tissue between them. That is stuff that I sort of come up with on the fly because I find it a great opportunity to discover things that I didn't think about, right? Like I didn't mm-hmm. plan for it. It's like, oh, this character has become really compelling. Like I want to work them into more of the book. Um, or uh, this plot twist, you know, oh man, that got that got really interesting there. I, I hadn't thought of that beforehand, but oh, that changes X, Y, and Z. Um, and I, I find if I have too strict of an outline, I will it's the same thing for me with going to do public speaking of any kind. If I have too much of a um, planned out idea, uh, I find that I, I get very anxious about needing to stick to it. And I don't allow myself to deviate because I'm like, oh, I've got, I've got this plan. I got to hit those those points. I got to hit those notes. Um, and I lose some of the spontaneity of it and some of the um, the uh, just the the delightful stuff you can find along the way. So for me, it's about like, all right, I kind of have a loose idea in my head of where I'm going. Oftentimes I do know the ending, like what is that scene going to look like? Like, where am I trying to get to? But I don't sort of go through and, and rigorously outline everything or, you know, have my bulleted list of like, this is exactly how the plot progresses, because then I find I get bored. Um, and I that feel like what I'm I was going like, to ask because a lot of, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of, I mean, I'm an outliner. I've talked about this before. Um, yep. Although funnily enough, actually, when I did my comic series Wasteland in the big picture, I actually followed that same idea that you do i had my tent poles but mm-hmm. how i got to them i left kind of open but when it came to do those when i got to a part where i'm like okay now i actually need to figure out what happens then i would outline in quite a bit of detail the story arc and the issues and what have you it was just only when i was looking at it from right. forty thousand feet or whatever the current vernacular is uh th- that i wouldn't necessarily ha- see all the details um but yeah generally i'm an outliner but when I talk to pantsers, it is, yeah, a lot of them say, oh, I couldn't outline because it feels like I'm writing the same thing yeah. twice and I get yeah. bored you know, when I come to write the manuscript, which I find personally odd <laughs> because <laughs> like, you, you have to do that anyway. Because if you're a pantser, that means when you get to the end of your first draft, you know that you're going to have to rewrite oh, almost yeah. the entire book so that everything now makes sense now that you've figured out where you're going to go. Now, I don't think that that's any more work than somebody like me puts in in terms of the outline. I think the actual total amount of work between the two, you know, uh, approaches Probably is about the same. pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, kicking the can to a different place is mainly the thing. It's like it's just putting your where where's your effort go in? Does it go in ahead of time or does it go in after the fact? Yeah. But I just find it interesting, this idea that, oh, well, if I write it twice, I'll be bored. But you are yeah. writing it twice. <laughs> I know. I know. It doesn't really make sense, but there is something weird about it. I don't I don't quite understand it myself, but like I definitely do feel that when I I had to write an outline for my for for Aleph because I you know was contracted. That, right. Like I had to. Yeah, I had to turn it in. And so I was like, whoa, man, this is my first time doing an outline. I mean, and it was just a, you know, it was a oh, synopsis, wait. right? So do you mean, did the publisher ask you for one or do you mean you felt compelled to write one just so that you no, could no, deliver no, they, on time? No, no, they asked me. It was a contractual thing. I right. had to turn oh, okay. in a like yeah, outline synopsis, whatever you want to call it, right? Like it was a few pages, three or four pages of like, here's no, the plot. Not, basically. Dude, that's not an outline. <laughs> that's that. That is an outline to me. Let me tell you. <laughs> I can't even do that for, yeah. I mean, like, I remember trying to write just like synopses of my previous books. I was like, nah, and then something happens, right? Like, that's just sort of what I would stick in. Whereas this was, I will say the, the final version of that book actually hews pretty closely to that synopsis I wrote. But I, it's still, it's a, it's a different skill set, I think, writing, outlining or writing synopses, whatever you want to call it, sort of doing that, that 30,000 foot view. Like, it's a different skill than writing the book in the same way that everyone who tells you, like, I have to write the, you know, back of my jacket copy or something <laughs> like and you're like if i could distill this book into yeah. three paragraphs i would have just written three paragraphs you're right if i if i could describe it in a paragraph i wouldn't have needed to write the book yeah exactly um so you mentioned taking that you do make notes in there you have notes uh you know yeah. that you follow roughly when you're when you're writing do you are you an inveterate note taker do you rely on 
inspiration and memory or because I write everything down, like literally everything, because I know that I will forget it if I don't, because my brain's, you know, off doing its own cartwheeling crazy thing. Um, So I have to, it's just, it's self-preservation more than anything, but I know obviously not everybody has those issues. So do you, do you carry a notebook with you all the time or are you a little more relaxed about it? I do not carry a notebook. I have one and sometimes I write notes in it, um, but I don't make a point of carrying it with me everywhere. I'm honestly, again, as a tech journalist, I, I'm I'm electronic in this regard and I'm not an inveterate note taker. First of all, I will tell you, I in, in college, I was terrible at taking notes. I just remember my favorite story about that was I was in a, in an English class with a friend of mine. And I never, I, as a rule, I did not take notes in, in like lectures because I just, I've, it's not a skill I ever managed to really pick up. And so I would just trust a memory and it was fine for the most part. Um, but she looked over at me once and she noticed me like writing furiously away. And she's like, wow, Dan's taking a lot of notes in this class. And then she looked closer and he's like, that has nothing to do with this class. He's like writing something else, something totally like different. Star Wars fanfic or something. Yeah, I was writing. I might have been writing like some sort of novel or short story idea or something, but it was not at all related to what we were doing in class. Um, so I, for me, I've had to, as necessity, uh, I've had to start writing more stuff down. And that's just, I feel like I'm getting older and I'm not as good at retaining information as I used to be. And I will forget it. Like you said, like my, I will get, move on to the next shiny thing uh, and forget like that great idea I had. So um, frankly, the the addition of a smartphone has been a godsend in that sense mm. because it gives me a place to write things down. And and it's simple for me. I just fire up the notes app on my iPhone and I've got like, uh, you know, folders um, for writing or podcast ideas or journalism ideas and then subfolders that are like this project or this world or whatever. And I just, yeah, sometimes I just make a new note and I'm like, here's a phrase that popped into my head or here's a character idea. And then I have a longer notes as well that are devoted to specific projects where I just sort of like, just continually add stuff onto the end of it. Um, and then, you know, sometimes those things make it through to the final thing. Sometimes they don't, but like you got, you got to capture it all. And, and I think I've become more, uh, more diligent about writing things down in the past five to 10 years, just because I real, I have certainly had those brilliant ideas that I've then forgotten and never and, been able to find again. Yeah. And, and that, that, I mean, that's for me when that happened, more than once was the time when I was like, oh, okay, I need to start writing everything yeah. down because there is little, to a, to a creative writer, there is little more frustrating than knowing you had a pretty good idea and not being able to remember what it was. Now, you know, any writer will tell you, will tell people if they ask us, you know, everybody will say, ideas are ten a penny, it's the execution that counts. Absolutely. But... <laughs> That doesn't... You can't miss. What if that was the greatest idea in the world, Anthony? Like, what if you lost it? And also, so... you've still got to execute an idea. Yeah. You've still got to have an idea to execute. So, yeah, that yeah, really exactly. doesn't, you know, lessen the frustration. I, yeah, I will add to that. The the main reason that I don't use a notebook is because I have absolutely atrocious handwriting that famously I cannot even read. So, oh, okay. I, I mean, mine's I will... terrible, but I can decipher it. I, you know, people may, my, my best friend from college is a doctor and he made fun of how bad my handwriting is. So, that tells you something. I mean, that's a, that's a bit right there, isn't it? That's, <laughs> you couldn't make that up. Good Lord. <laughs> no, I can't. Oh God. Yeah. It's really bad. So yeah, I, I try it, but every time I, I try a new notebook thing, I'm like, this is so inefficient. I'm very slow. I'm much faster at typing and I can read it back later with the exception of when autocorrect decides to totally screw me over. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I use the notes app a lot as well. I mean, what I do is my system is that I, I either take notes directly into the notes app. Yeah. If I've got my phone out anyway, or, uh, or if I don't happen to have my notebook to hand, if I'm at home, I don't carry it around the house with me, but I do take it with me everywhere I go outside of the home. But if I make notes in the notebook, then when I get home, I type them up, um, and transcribe them partly because while I'm doing that, I find that it sparks new ideas. And uh, I think more about the notes that I've made. And so I wind up actually typing twice as much as I've written down by hand. So that's actually an invaluable part of my process. Structuring it is different, too. I think that's the biggest problem I have with notebooks a lot of the time is like it feels so linear in the way that it's laid out. Right. And it's like, do I put this on a new page? Do I put it at the bottom of this other page? Like, I, I just always struggled with, like, how to structure that on a paper notebook, whereas 
in a notes app where I can just easily fire up a new note or I You've already have like taxonomy. a, yeah. I have as much space as I need, right? It's not like, Oh, I had this page that was about this project and now it's run into this page, three of the pages later. That's about a different project. And now I need to like put stuff at the end of the note, right? Like I, I that always just gave me sort of agita. <laughs> like it's just like, <laughs> ah, this is not the um, way I want to lay it out. My so. notebook is entirely linear. It, it's a river of, you know, like every, yeah. I just rule underneath and then start on whatever the next idea is. But okay. So, so I was going to ask you about when you come to write then, not your note-taking, but linear versus non-linear when you write, because I write in a non-linear, this is partly why I have an outline, I write in a very non-linear fashion. I'll leap around writing different scenes and chapters and stuff until I've got the whole thing finished. But if you're, most of the pantsers I know are linear writers. Uh, is that true of you as well? 100%, yeah. I, I In a first draft, I pretty much always write in a linear fashion from start to end. Uh, I, I can't jump around because if for, you know, some of it is kind of practical, like you said, like if you're figuring it out as you go along and you jump forward, then either you need to go back and find a way to make those things connect or you've totally veered off into like a, like a parallel universe or something. So, uh, you know, uh, you don't know what has transpired in the interim that might affect a later scene, right? Like if right. you jump ahead to a, a later scene, you're like, all right, these two characters are having a conversation about this. And then you go back later and you're like, oh, this thing happens. You're like, wait, that would surely come up in this later conversation that I've already written. Like that to me sounds like a headache. So I, I think I also, some of it is that feeling of like when writing and discovering something because, and I imagine this is true for a lot of pantsers too, you know, people who, so much of their love comes from consumption of stories mm -hmm. and you consume a story in a linear fashion. So in, in my head anyways, like it is like playing out a movie sometimes. Right. And so I am writing like this thing that I'm imagining and I'm like sort of playing it out like it's in order. And, you know, I feel like I'm just transcribing the story that I'm constructing in my head at the same time. I guess it's like building a bridge, like as you're on the bridge, which right. is risky. Okay. <laughs> or laying but, tracks you know, in front of the train. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If you had never seen a bridge built before and you're like, well, I just go from one end to the other. Like that must be the way it works. Right. So, yeah, I mean, maybe there's a better answer that I've never discovered. And I'm just sort of, I, you know, we all just figure it out as we go. But I think for me, the linear thing, it's a must. I, I've tried occasionally jumping around when I feel like I'm really stuck in a place, but more often than not, I found I, I find that if I've jumped ahead to write a scene, that scene doesn't work anymore and I need to throw it out and rewrite it anyway. So honestly, I just sort of stick with the start to finish approach. But that does rely on your memory as you're going mm -hmm. then, you know, even though mm -hmm. I, I understand what you're saying about you don't want to jump ahead because then you have to figure out what happened in between and you might have forgotten something. But if you're writing from start to finish, you know, obviously that's going to take you several weeks if not months and so you know how is your memory for say you're at the 50,000 word point you know how's your memory for what happened in a scene 20,000 years words ago or years yeah it oh, feels years. like years <laughs> <laughs> uh it's all Freudian slip <laughs> yeah no it's yeah um good for some things bad for other things i think for me plot stuff sticks pretty well um i will definitely make I will. It's definitely fallible. Like yeah. I will definitely run to situations where I reuse the same phrase. Um, oh, sometimes I, I do that all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, this is such a good turn of phrase. Oh, this is great. And then you find like your, your copy editor is like, Oh, by the way, you use this expression like three times. And you're like, Oh, I've oh. outsmarted myself again. Not only, um, not only just phrases, but I had, uh, in my, the last novel I wrote, which was Tempest project. Um, one of my beta readers pointed out that I, I literally had the same scene happened twice in the space of about 30 pages because I just forgot that I'd already written yep. that scene. <laughs> yep. Yep. Been there. Um, I, I, I tend to do okay, mostly for sort of the macro stuff. Like I don't tend to duplicate scenes as much. Um, and I, I reread a little bit as I go as well to help with that, but I definitely forget details. Uh, and this is why, um, something we'll touch on maybe a little bit, but like, it's one reason I have started trying to find sort of a, a way to canonically store a lot of the details. And this is even more the point with writing books in a series, right? Like you're trying yeah, to remember, yeah, yeah. oh, three books ago, I told you this, this guy's eyes were blue and now they're suddenly green in this page. And it's like, well, let, oh, let's talk about that. then. Yeah. so how do you do that? What, what methods have you tried so far? So to date, 
uh, the main thing I do is like I do have some notes that are appended to books like my previous manuscripts where I'll have. Um, so I use Scrivener, as I know you do, um, mm-hmm. and I will use sort of the non manuscript part of that to store uh, you know, information about characters. The problem was it was all in like that first manuscript, right? Because I'm like, oh, right, the bios of the characters that are in this book. Um, but now two books later, it's like, well, I need to go find the old manuscript, open it up to find the stuff. So I've recently started shifting my stuff to an online, um, like a little wiki that I built for myself. Um, <laughs> and I know this is ridiculous, but it's at that point, right? Where it's like, well, I had a character that showed up two books ago, like, I don't want to contradict the details of where they grew up or, you know, the name of I found I had mistakenly uh, given the organization, an organization name in both a singular and a plural. Um, It was both the Imperial Intelligence Service and the Imperial Intelligence Services. Mm. And I realized I had done that across multiple books. And I was like, oh, God, come on. Like, you know, and so I was like, well, I got to find a place that is just sort of the canonical I can look something up for myself, right? Like having your Wikipedia where you can look stuff up only it's all stuff from your own head. So you're the only one who can write it down. Um, and I like the wiki format because it lets you not only easily create links between things, um, but it also is just very easy to um, structure different uh, pages and categories of stuff, et cetera. So I, I, that's had to be more important because of the memory issue. Like I do find myself forgetting details that I might've, uh, you know, established a book ago or even earlier in the same book. Um, and you know, that's very easy to make that mistake. And if you're, if you're lucky and you've got great copy editors and proofreaders, then a lot of times they'll catch that for you, but you Mm. can't rely on it. It is odd, isn't it? How, when you're working on a book, especially when you're at the revision and proofing stages, you, you feel like, you know, that book back to front and upside Mm -hmm. down because you've read it all so many times. You've made the little nitpicking proofing changes and revisions and what have you and you feel like i I just i know this book intimately and then it comes out and three months later you forget almost everything that was in it it's so crazy (laughs) it's so weird it is so weird you've you've lived and breathed and slept to this book and it was the most important thing in your life for the period you were writing it and then yeah like uh, (laughs) you just seem to like eject it from your brain it's weird isn't it the next thing has to come in yeah and i like i Trying to find stuff like uh, I was very interesting as I was writing Aleph because uh, this is the, the follow up to Bayern, but it's technically the third book in this world. Uh, I was like pulling up my electronic copies and I have to work from like the published versions, right? Because I, yep. my drafts may not be the final version that ended up on the page. Your PDFs, because, command F, look for yeah, that phrase. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what did I refer to this? Who did I call this person? Like, what was their title? You know, all that jazz. And so you, yeah, you spend a lot of time looking stuff up. And wishing that you had you had the money, unlimited money to hire somebody to do that. Right, work hire a canonist. Where's my chronicler? Yeah. yeah. Chronicler, that's a much better word. Yeah, much better title. That's what I need. So uh I do the same thing in Scrivener. Uh I have, yeah, in my I'm trying to think what that other section's called now, but yeah, the non manuscript notes section. Um I think it's called research, actually. Research. Uh yeah. yeah, I actually have a character sheet template where it has blanks for, you know, name, height, mm-hmm. hair color, background, nationality, all that sort of thing for characters. Um, and I will create one for every, uh, well, major and secondary. You know, it's really only the most minor characters that I don't bother with that, uh, making a character shoot for them. I even get pictures. I look up, uh, I go to like yep, photo I've services and get, you know, like stock images and things like that of people just so I have an idea. I've used actors in places where like I had like, a oh, I really... don't do that. I don't do yeah, that because I, I'm always afraid of if I do that, I'm going to hear their voice when I'm writing the character and I don't. That's not been an issue for me. I just like, I have looks in my head sometimes like, Oh yeah, like that person, they yeah. kind of look like that person. But for the multi-book thing, I just duplicate the project. Mm. <laughs> so the second the book, I just it. duplicate. Once the first project's finished, I just duplicate it, retitle it with the name of the new book. And there are all the characters. And if I need to update them, Basically, it means that they grow as the series right, goes right. along. So you look at the character sheet of somebody from book f- four or whatever in a series, and it's going to be quite different or sure, larger, yeah. I should say, to the character sheet in book one. But it's all, everything is what I needed to know at that point. Yeah. The most critical thing that I had in that first manuscript, which I've now pulled out and put elsewhere, uh, was the timeline. 
uh, of the galaxy right, yeah. uh, of the world that I was building because it was important. There were important things like when were these planets settled? When was this organization founded? When were these characters born? Like where were they born? And like sort of I just created like, you know, a run a download list. And I had started originally. I didn't have like a great date, like a specific real world date since this is essentially set in our universe, but like thrown forward several hundred years. Um, but I didn't want to like nail it down because to me that wasn't super important. And so everything was relative to the first book. And so everything right. was like minus minus 150, like this 150 <laughs> years prior to the book, this happened 50 years prior to the book, this happened 20 years prior to the book, this happened. Um, and so I, I eventually as necessity happened, I needed to actually anchor stuff to real world dates in the second book. So that ended up being a little more interesting, but it was still oh, like, so you had to go back and put those dates in. Yeah. In fact, I did a stupid thing recently as I was building this wiki where I used a spreadsheet to like, all right, I know the year zero is this year. And then just sort of had everything else build like spreadsheet cells that modified the date based on, well, it was 150 <laughs> years before, just subtract 150. Uh, that's the computer nerd part of you. Yep. That's what you do. Um, well, like yeah, building was, a wiki was, isn't computer nerdy enough. <laughs> Oh man, I won't go into the amount. I can, we could do it another episode easily just on the, what I spent doing with that, but that is outside of the scope of this podcast. <laughs> so I did the same thing with dates in the fuse. Um, mm -hmm. although what I did there was I made a timeline and I did know the real dates, but what, but when referring to dates in the comics, nobody ever uses the century. Right. Right. They always refer to dates as they say things like, you know, back in 94 or, you know, right, back, exactly. back in 03. That's but how you sidestep it. That's nice. Right. I like it. Yeah. They never actually mentioned the century. And that was exactly it. Just because I didn't <laughs> want people going, it's I absurd know. that this level of technology yes. would exist within 150 years of the present That's day. That's exactly you know. the reason I didn't want to do it. Yeah. People always complain about like, there's no way we could colonize planets in 400 years because of blah, blah. And it's like. Yeah, it's not what the book's about, man. It doesn't man. matter. Yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> it's not what it's about. No, it's hard to hear, man, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, uh, how do you relax? What's your, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, once, oh. the, once the writing's done, like, how do you sort of wind down and get out of, because, I mean, you know, oh, famously, we never stop thinking about what we're writing, but at the same time, we do have to go and be real people with families and stuff. So, how do you get out of the mindset and go and wind down? Oh man, that's a great question. Do I, do I even manage to do that successfully? <laughs> I don't even know. Um, I mean, I have, I have all sorts of other, you know, normal pastime thing, right? Like I'll watch TV, I'll play video games. Um, I'll <laughs> hopefully not spend too much time on social media, but that happens. Um, yeah, I, I find a lot of times it, for me, it's short bursts. I don't, I don't tend to have as much of a problem getting out of the zone because I think when I do work, um, when I'm working on a project, it's like short bursts. Like I can't, it's like, I'm a, I'm a sprinter. I've always been a sprinter. I'm not a long distance runner. Uh, I can run a 5k and even that is like a little rough for me, but like I'll go and I'll work for a couple hours and I'll be like really into it. And then I'll have a moment where I kind of feel like the, the, you know, adrenaline goes down a little bit and I'll be like, all right, I'm done. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm done for today. I think I'm done. And, and then I'll just sort of go on and move on to something else. And I think that moving on to something else is always, it's incredibly valuable, right? It's like, you know, the people who talk about, and I've definitely been there, like you get your best ideas in the shower or whatever, right? Like you're doing, you're just doing something that's kind of rote, uh, and your brain, your back of your brain is working on the problem. So I think that's the biggest recovery for me is doing stuff that is not related directly to the creative pro process. So even I consider editing a podcast, like, yeah, there's creative elements to it, but so much of it is like, all right, I'm going to slice this. I'm going to do this. It becomes like a very mechanical process. Mm. And so because I can sort of relax into that and zone out, um, it means it frees up the creative part of my mind to just sort of like recover. And, and, and you know, the analogy I always use for anything writing related is it's kind of like exercise, you know, in the same way that you go to the gym regularly and you, you know, get used to it, you get better at stuff, you write regularly, right? Like you got to sort of keep your, your hand in the game in the same way that you go to the gym and then you have to take a day off, right? Like, like you got to recover. You got to let your body like acclimate to all the, the exercise you just did. I think the same is true with writing, right? Like you got to let that part of your brain chill out and then sort of recover. And then you can get back into it the next time you go. So uh, the stuff that's kind of, I don't want to strictly get into the whole like left brain, right brain thing. But like, I think there's an argument for that sort of, I'm going to do work that is not creative uh, and that will help recharge the creative part of my brain. Yeah, it's the paradox of productivity, isn't it? Is you're actually more if you take a break 
and mm-hmm. let yourself relax, you will actually then be more productive in the long run. Sure. Than if yeah, you, you just try to burn wise. out. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah, it's just too much. Okay. Right. So let's let's start bringing this to a close. I want to ask. I like like to ask everybody this. What do you sort of quietly think that you're pretty good at? <laughs> Quietly. No, I'm loud about it. All um, right. Well, is loud. Right. you're American, aren't you? So <laughs> <laughs> I'm rooting tootin'. Um yeah, uh dialogue is I think always the thing that I I love writing it the most, and I think I'm pretty good at it. Um it is and some of that comes from, you know, I took a few classes on writing screenplays, and so much of screenplays is writing dialogue. Yeah. Um, and I think I have an ear for it. Um, just the way that people speak, uh the cadences of text, like I can I can read a piece of text or write a piece of text and sort of hear in my head how it goes. Um, and that for me is, I think it is my biggest strength as a writer because I feel like if you can capture the voices of people, um, readers respond to that in a way that in the same way that if you write something that sounds weird or like doesn't sound natural, like people will, will sort of perk up their ears and go like, no, that's, that's strange or they'll feel very distant. And that's, if that's like what kind of what you're going for, that's one thing. But, you know, I, I think we've all read stuff or, or watched stuff or heard stuff where people talk and you're like, nobody would say that. Like right, yeah. no person would ever <laughs> talk that way. That's so weird. And so for me, a lot of it has been about capturing that kind of verisimilitude of, of people talking. Um, and I think, yeah, dialogue for me is it's, I like it, and I maybe that's because I'm good at it, or maybe I'm good at it because I like it. I don't know which way that flows. The but, eternal yeah. catch twenty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, what do you wish you were better at? <laughs> I I wish I was better at just the the sort of anything that's not dialogue, I guess. But like the prose, I, I read books as I'm sure you have, where you just read this incredibly beautiful prose, and you know the, the kind of thing where you like read a sentence and you're like, wow that just blew me away. Like it was like a whole story told in this, in this one sentence. Um, and I, I don't think it's, it's something I've, I feel like every once in a while I managed to sort of stumble upon that. Um, and I think that's, that's something I aspire to is writing something that, you know, you kind of truly has a beauty to it, uh, rather than just, I think of so much of my writing is much more functional about getting from point A to point B. Um, and you can get a nice turn of the phrase in there somewhere, but, uh, it's it's a little different from writing something that is truly beautiful. And and for me, I think that's something I aspire to. Uh, and I, I hope I can get there. <laughs> no, I, I can relate to that. Yeah, it's the thriller writer, isn't it? It's the same that you want, you know, t- turning the page right, to us exactly. is more important. You know, if you have to make a choice between turning the page or crafting the perfect, beautiful sentence, you've got to get them to turn the page because that's the right. purpose of the exactly. book. You know? That's what matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So last question. Uh, not about your work. What is something that you have read or watched recently where the writing really impressed you? And, you know, and what was it about it that impressed you? Uh, I will pick a movie, uh, Knives Out by Ryan Johnson, who directed The oh, Last I've Jedi. Heard nothing but good things about it. I haven't seen it myself oh, my yet gosh. at the time of recording. But uh, yeah. And I won't, I won't spoil anything because it is definitely a movie that can be spoiled. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a modernish take on sort of your classic whodunit. And I love a good, uh, you know, English country house murder. Right, as a good were. Agatha Christie, yeah, yeah. Yes, and this is clearly inspired by that, but like also with a modern twist on it. And it was, I very rarely go and sit down in a movie um, that is, first of all, I, I feel like so much of my past few years of movies have been absorbed by the huge franchise movies. So like I've been trying to go to more, uh, you know, offbeat movies more recently. And so it was really nice to get a change from that. But like the kind of movie where you just sort of get back and you settle in and you're just like, I just want to know what happens next. And so it's got some some great moments um, of dialogue. It's also just got some great twists as you want in this kind of story, right? Like it's twisty, it's turny. And then at the same time, as you go through it, you start putting it together. And so like you're, you're maybe just like one step behind, which is, I think, is a perfect place to be in a mystery novel because mm-hmm. you feel clever, like oh, I figured some stuff out, but there's still something left to surprise you and delight you. And that is hard to do. But I think this movie does it pretty well. And it's just it's fun, too, which is another big part of it. So I thought that was fabulous. Just a, a wonderful little surprise of a movie that they don't make a lot of those kinds of movies. anymore. They do not. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. It was good. I enjoyed it quite a bit. So, yeah, I'll put that up there. Fantastic. All right, so Dan, where can people find you online? 
Uh, I am in many places. You can find me on Twitter. I am at dmorin. Um, if you go over to my website, which is dmorin.com, you can find out more about my books, my tech journalism, the many, many podcasts I'm on, including some that I do with Anthony every once in a while, um, which are over at the Incomparable Network. Um, I'm also on Relay FM. I'm all over the place. So start with my website. That'll point you towards every place else worth going. You are, I think you're one of the few people online who's got more venues and destinations than me. <laughs> 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 I'll take it. I'll take it. That's, uh, that's a rare honor. Um, all right. And what uh, what work of yours would you recommend our listeners check out if they're not familiar with your work already? Well, if you're not familiar with my work already, I would go and check out The Bayern Agenda, which is, as of this recording, my most recently published novel. Uh, it's available at all fine booksellers published by Angry Robot. Um, and yeah, you can read it in an ebook, paperback. There's an audio book. Go nuts. <laughs> fantastic all right dan thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me this was a distinct pleasure i feel like we probably could have done like two more hours easily, oh, easily yes <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all out there for listening to writing and breathing if you enjoyed the show why not become a patreon supporter patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published so go to patreon.com slash writing and breathing to make your pledge if you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that's also where you'll find all the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.